Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, History of Andrew Womack Ministries. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Hello, this is Andrew Womack, and on this tape I'd like to just share my testimony about how the Lord got me into the ministry and some foundational things about the Andrew Womack Ministries, who we are, what we do, things like this. There's a couple of purposes in making this tape. One of them is, is as an introduction to people who may just be coming in contact with our ministry and they want to know a little bit about uh, who it is that's teaching them. I think that that's important. to The Scripture says to know those who labor among you, and there's many applications of that, but one of them is that you need to uh, know the person. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, uh, "...considering the end of their conversation." knowing that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, the person that ministers to you, you need to know a little bit about them and see whether what they're preaching works in their own life, recognizing that Jesus is always the same. If they're one person when they're ministering and another person at other times, then uh, something is wrong, and it throws skepticism on all of the teaching. So one of the purposes is just to introduce ourselves to anybody who may want to know it, Also, it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, speaking about Satan, that he was cast to the earth and that he persecuted the saints and that the saints overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And each one of us has a testimony, and our testimony can be used by the Lord in many different ways. It's a weapon against the devil. It can also inspire other people. And in my... um, transition into the ministry, I've made some mistakes. I've learned some things the hard way, and you don't have to learn everything by hard knocks. You can benefit from the lives of other people. And so hopefully my testimony will also uh, possibly give some direction or wisdom to people who are entering into the ministry and show them some things that they should do and probably show them a lot of things that they should not do. So anyway, this is my purpose In making this tape, it's not to promote myself or anything like that, but I really do believe that uh, since I have a media ministry and uh, the vast majority of the people that I meet, I well, let me rephrase that, the vast majority of the people that I minister to, I have never met. I don't have a personal relationship with them so that they can come to know me personally, so therefore I think it is appropriate to make some information about where we've come from, etc., so that you can know those who labor among you. Uh, Let me also say in introduction that my wife and I both have a personal testimony tape that basically deals with uh, our upbringing, our conversion experience, and how the Lord put us together as a couple. And that really is a miraculous testimony in itself. My wife and I were engaged to be married before we ever held hands. I mean, God put us together, and it has been the Lord supernaturally that has made this marriage work. And so we have all of that on our personal testimony tapes, and that kind of leads up to the time when we begin into ministry. Now, some of my testimony about getting into ministry and about the growth of the Andrew Womack Ministries and what we're doing, it overlaps with my personal testimony, so there will be a little bit of repeat here. But really, my testimony about ministry began on March the 23rd, 1968. I was 18 years old at the time, and I was um, basically, I was born again when I was eight years old, 
and I really love the Lord. And I mean, I was serving the Lord with the wisdom and the light that I had, but it wasn't. I wasn't serving Him very good because I didn't know very much. I was intimidated. I had no boldness. I was not filled with the Holy Spirit. I was not really effective for the Lord. I can't say that I had ever really seen anybody's life transformed by my witness. Now, that is not to say that I hadn't witnessed, because I was raised in a church, the Baptist church, that put a huge emphasis on the born-again experience. And once you got born again, they really didn't teach you a lot about how to mature, but instead told you that the rest of the Christian life is getting somebody else born again. And even though it wasn't always said directly, it was inferred that God's pleasure and acceptance of you is based on how well you perform, and the biggest area that you had to perform in was leading somebody else to the Lord. So from the time that I was young, I participated in witnessing classes. I even taught witnessing classes. I was president of the choir, president of the youth group, everything that you could possibly be president of. In our church, I was. I was totally committed to it. So I was very involved in church. I was very religious, but I was really very ineffective and frustrated. And to complicate all of this, I was an introvert. And um, I had a hard time looking at a person and talking to them. Now, people that knew me from church might have a hard time believing that because I was just like a different person at church. That was my element. That's I felt secure in that situation. And uh, so I was pretty much an outgoing person at church, but like at school and any other place, I was an introvert. And when I went out to witness to people, I had to psych myself up to be able to go witness. So I'm saying all of this as background. This is kind of where I was. But as I graduated from high school, the one thing that had really been drilled into me was that God had a plan for my life. And I just knew this. I believed it. I never questioned it. I never thought anything about it. I, I really believed that it was not up to me to pick and choose what I wanted to do with my life, but that God had a purpose for me and that I would only be truly happy and successful if I found what God's will was. And I believe that that's true for everyone. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. I mean, God has a plan, a purpose for our life, and, and it's always a good purpose. So because of that, when I was coming into my senior year in high school, I began to really seek the Lord about what he wanted me to do. And as I said, even though I loved the Lord and I was living a very moral, godly life in that respect, I didn't know anything about how to hear the voice of God and how to be led by God. So it was just desperation crying out to the Lord. And after I prayed my prayer and didn't get a specific answer, I didn't know what God wanted me to do, then uh, I just started studying the Bible, believing that somewhere in there, there must be direction for me and what God wanted me to do. And even my senior year in high school, the vast majority of the nights, I would stay up till 2, 3, 4 in the morning studying the Bible. Now, I had read it all of my life. I've, I've read my quote-unquote daily Bible readings, is what we called it in the Baptist church, ever since I was born again at eight years old. And I've never gone through a period of rebellion, and I never quit doing it. I mean, I have read the Bible constantly. And yet, I didn't really read it with a heart open, desiring, seeking God. It was just the thing to do. And so my senior year in high school, I began to start reading it with a new attitude, and I was just absorbed. I was learning things uh, 
it was just tremendous. It was ministering to me, but I wasn't getting revelation necessarily about what God wanted me to do. And then my first year in college, I went into college and just became a math major because that was my best subject. I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. And it really heightened my frustration because I was now actually beginning to take courses and make preparation for something that I didn't have a clue if God wanted me to do that or not. And so my first semester in college, I really got desperate about seeking God. And I was really studying the Word and praying and looking for an answer. And I remember that our church held a retreat at Albuquerque, or not Albuquerque, um, Cloudcroft, New Mexico, every year. It was close to Alamogordo, White uh, Sands Missile Range. And we went up there into the mountains and had a good time uh, in the snow and things like this. And we had done this every year for a number of years. And I remember at this... um, retreat during in between Christmas and New Year's that we had a speaker and this speaker was talking about being spiritual and whether you're carnal and all these kind of things and uh, they taught from Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 and you remember that I was really seeking God for direction in my life and from those passages of scripture those scriptures are the first verses that ever just, I mean, burn themselves into my life. Now, like I said, for the previous year before this, I'd been studying the Word, and I was getting a lot out of it. God was speaking to me, and I was beginning to see things. But, I mean, a a scripture had never just exploded on the inside of me like uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 did. And those passages say, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Those two verses said you will prove God's good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Well, that's what I was looking for, and so that got my attention. And I backtracked from the end of that verse all the way back up through the previous verse, And the word prove means to make manifest to the physical senses. Well, I believe God had a will for me, but I just didn't know how to get it manifest so I could understand it. This verse was saying, you do these things, you will prove. It was a promise. And basically, in verse 1, that scripture says that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That's your reasonable service. And what the Lord spoke to me through this was that his perfect will for my life was not a vocation. Not what I was going to do, but his will for my life was to be yielded unto him as a living sacrifice. And if I would do that, then everything else would fall in place. And so this became an answer to me. It didn't give me my vocation, but it gave me something I believe was even more important, and that was that God wanted me. He wanted all of me. Now, that was in Christmas of 1967. And so from that time, I just began to start yielding myself to the Lord the best I knew how and seeking the Lord and asking the Lord to take control of my life and run it. And then on March the 23rd, 1968, I was in a prayer meeting in a Baptist pastor study. This will show you how religious I was because for over a year, uh, I and all my best friends would meet together with a couple of uh, the leaders of the church and we would pray every Saturday night from 10 o'clock until midnight for the services the next Sunday. And that's what we did. I mean, 18-year-old kids would meet and pray. 
And I enjoyed doing it. We'd all pray out loud and we'd take turns praying. But again, my relationship with the Lord, even though it was beginning to develop and I was now getting a hunger for the Lord, it still was pretty shallow and I didn't have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I didn't speak in tongues. And, you know, you can pray for the whole world in just a few moments if you don't speak in tongues. I mean, I could pray everything I needed to pray in five minutes or whatever. And it was a very typical type of prayer like, God bless us today, forgive us of our sins, pray for the services, if it be your will, for Jesus' sake, amen. And it was pretty carnal uh, prayer. But there was one of the people in our group, our youth director, his name is Marion Warren, very good friend of mine to this day. And Marion Warren, when he prayed to the Lord, it was different than the way I prayed. I mean, he had an, uh, a relationship with the Lord that I didn't have, and he had an intimacy with the Lord. And when he prayed, he would talk to the Lord like it was a, like the Lord was a real person, and you could tell by his prayer that the Lord would answer him and talk back to him. And it was neat to listen to. But, you know, sometimes he'd pray for 15, 20 minutes or so, and... Uh, after he'd prayed that long, there was really nothing left for me to say. And because of this, you know, here I was trying to impress everybody with all my spirituality and these things. I always went into that prayer meeting, and I was always the first one to pray. I got my prayer out of the way so that I could, you know, get it off my chest, listen to Marion, and enjoy his prayer. But, I mean, if he prayed first, there was nothing left to say. So... I always prayed first. Well, on March the 23rd, 1968, I walked into the room, and right before we got down to pray, I was talking to some of my friends, and we were still talking about, you know, whatever, about baseball or whatever was going on at the time. And Marion was just really burdened, and he hit his knees and started praying, and he prayed for like 45 minutes or an hour. And when he did, I mean, it was it was powerful what he was saying, but... I was sitting there thinking, boy, this isn't fair. What am I going to say? How am I going to look? What about me? And I actually, instead of enjoying Marion's prayer, I was angry, and I was bitter, and I was thinking bad thoughts towards him. And I was thinking about, boy, what are people going to think of me? And I can't tell you all of the reasons why I'm sure that seeking the Lord for the previous 18 months was a factor in it. I'm sure that people were praying for me and other things. But whatever the reasons, God just opened up my spiritual eyes and understanding. And in a split moment, I got some things into perspective. And I saw how hypocritical I was. I saw how all my goodness and my holiness was. I was trusting in it, and I wasn't trusting in Jesus. Now, I was born again, but I, as far as my maintenance, my day-to-day -day walk with the Lord... I was doing things by myself. I was witnessing for the pat on the back that I got in front of the church and things like that. The Lord just showed me hypocrisy in every area of my life and basically showed me that all of my goodness and all of my great works amounted to a big zero because I had done it all in myself and it wasn't directed by God. just showed me I was a total, total hypocrite. And when he showed me that, I mean, it broke my heart. And uh, it would take a long time to explain some of these things, but I had been told that God killed my dad when I was 12 years old, that he needed him in heaven more than I needed him, and that God put bad things in your life, and uh, tragedy was God's way of doing things to you. So I had a very harsh impression of God. And when it came my turn to pray, I just became honest. 
and transparent. And I I confessed out loud in front of my friends, the leaders of the church, all of the people that I had spent my whole life trying to impress and to show that I was somebody. I began to confess my total hypocrisy. I confessed every rotten attitude. I didn't hide one thing. I confessed how I felt about Marion that night as he was praying. I mean, I gave every rotten, defiled thought I'd ever had. I just spewed it all out. It, I must have prayed for an hour and a half or two hours. And because of my theology about God being a severe, punishing God, I expected God to kill me on the spot. I really did. But to my surprise, when I got through and I just said, God, I'm sorry, and I asked forgiveness, to my total amazement, all of the love and the joy and the peace that I'd been trying to earn by my holiness and by all of my good works, it just came flooding into my life. I mean, I could spend hours explaining this, but the love of God tangibly flowed through me. And in a moment's time, my heart was forever changed. I could never be the same. For I spent about four and a half months literally just caught up in the love of God, so overwhelmed by it that I didn't consciously eat or sleep for four months. Now, I did both, but I mean, I never slept over an hour or two hours at a time because I was just so excited about the Lord, I couldn't sleep. I must have eaten, but I can't even remember eating. I had a horse that I rode every single day of my life for many years, and it was four and a half months later before I even thought about that horse. I didn't know if anybody had fed it, if it was still alive or whatever. I was just consumed with God. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because that's really the birth of ministry. Immediately after experiencing God like that, I just knew that my life was 100% God's from then on. It would never be mine again. It was whatever he wanted. I got up in front of my Baptist church the next Sunday, the next morning, and I tried to explain what happened, and I couldn't explain it. Nobody had a clue what happened to me, not even the people that were there. But I told them, I said, it doesn't matter if I'm a janitor, if I pour cement, whatever I do the rest of my life. I'm serving God every ounce, every breath that I've got. My life was just instantly changed. And so I knew right then that I was going to be serving God full time. And immediately I began to start witnessing to everything that moved. I mean everything. I witnessed to hundreds of people a day. Prior to that time, I went on a Thursday night adult visitation, and I even started a Tuesday night visitation for the young people in our church. But it was something I forced, and I didn't enjoy it. I had to psych myself up, and I did it really because I felt like God would be upset with me if I didn't. But after that experience, I was so full of the love of God, I couldn't constrain myself. I mean, I witnessed to people coming out of 7-Eleven stores. I did it in anger and condemnation at first because that's the way that I'd always seen witnessing done. But in my heart, I was motivated by love. I was trying to show people God's love, but I'd condemn them and say if they didn't accept it, they'd go to hell. But anyway, I immediately knew that God had a call on my life, and it radically changed my life. I started witnessing to people. I lost interest in college. Uh, The Lord led me out of college, and at that time it was the height of the Vietnam War. And that immediately got me an all-expense-paid trip to Vietnam. I spent 13 months over there. And during that period of time, I witnessed to a lot of people. But one of the main things that happened in Vietnam was I'd spend as much as 16 hours a day just sitting and reading the Bible. 
And it was a tremendous time of me learning and growing in the Lord. And it transformed my life. When I got back out of Vietnam, uh, I started uh, being a youth director at a little Baptist church over in Garland, Texas. I got some experience ministering to people, but uh, still I wasn't very effective. I was not being able to communicate what was in my heart. Uh, A good friend of mine uh, that traveled with Kenneth Copeland during the period of time that I was in the Army, he came to me and shared with me about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and told me that that's what I experienced that night in that prayer meeting. He was there with me. And he said, that's what we got. And I didn't realize it because I didn't speak in tongues at that time. And it's a long story. But anyway, through a number of things, I began to realize that what had happened to me on in 1968 was I received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Then I wanted to manifest this speaking in tongues, and it took a period of time. But as I spoke in tongues and began to operate in that, my life transformed again, primarily in the area of revelation. I began to get revelation of what God had done in my life, and the Word of God just began to come alive unto me. The dominant thing that the Lord began to show me was His grace. And the thing that had confused me, even after this wonderful experience that I had on March the 23rd, 1968, I had the love of God flowing through me. I knew that God loved me, but it was it was not based on anything I did. Matter of fact, it was at my very worst when I confessed how sorry I was. And when I quit trying to perform and do something to earn God's favor is when this love was dumped on me. And it just ruined my theology because my whole thing was that God would love me proportional to how well I performed. So I performed better than most people did. And yet I never really had that assurance and acceptance of God's love. When I finally gave up and said, God, I failed you, I'm sorry, forgive me, when I was at my worst is when the love came. And it took me three years to get a revelation of why that happened. When I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, started speaking in tongues, this revelation of God's Word began to come, and God began to start teaching me about unconditional love. And the Word just exploded. So the results was that I started trying to minister. And the ways that I ministered at first, I was still attending this Baptist church where I had been a youth director uh, for a period of time. And I started teaching there when they needed a substitute. I was kind of radical for them. They knew, nobody knew that I spoke in tongues, but they knew that I was different. And uh, yet, you know, in the Baptist church, they really are big about putting people to work and having everybody do something. And I was the most zealous person in the church, and so they couldn't totally turn me down, but they didn't just want to give me my own class because they weren't sure what I'd teach people. So what they did was use me as a substitute. And they taught out of quarterlies. You had to teach what was in this quarterly. And so when somebody didn't show up, they would just ask me with, you know, on the spur of the moment, 30 seconds a minute's notice to go in and take over this class. And I'd walk in there, and I'd just say, God, I don't know what to teach these people. I've never read this lesson. I don't know what's happening. And I'd open it up, and, boy, the Word would just begin to flow out of me, and people's lives were being changed. We started seeing healings happen right there in our Baptist Sunday school classes. I remember one week in particular that the quarterly's lesson was from a scripture in Malachi, I think it was, and it was some scripture that was really obscure that I didn't have any idea what it meant. And I opened that up, read it, and, I mean, my first thought was, God, how am I going to teach for an hour on this? 
and it just flowed out on me. And it was so awesome. Everybody in there was just amazed. They knew I didn't have any time to prepare anything. And I began to question and say, God, what's happening here? And I remember one day as I drove through a toll booth in the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, Turnpike going to church, and I knew when I got there that somebody wouldn't be wouldn't be there. They'd ask me to teach a class, and even though I didn't have a clue what I was supposed to teach on, I just knew it would be blessed. And I was thinking about this and thinking, God, how how does this happen? How can I teach people something that I've never studied before? And as I paid that toll, I remember the Lord spoke to me in my heart, not in an audible voice, and he said, you're a teacher. And I had, I knew I was going to do something for the Lord, and I, I had a tr- burning desire to testify about the Lord, but I didn't want to be a preacher because of what I'd seen. I knew I wasn't called to stand up and tell three points in a poem and be what I had seen a preacher. But when the Lord spoke to me and said I was a teacher, I didn't know exactly what that was, but I knew it was different, and I just latched on to that and believed that that was God telling me. And I believe that even though I was called earlier, that's when I received a revelation of specifically how I was going to minister for the Lord. And uh, so I began to see that prosper. They actually uh, finally gave me my own Sunday school group, and they gave me a group of about three or four teenagers put us out in a stripped bus that didn't have any seats in it, no carpet in it or anything. It was totally stripped. And uh, I started with three or four people out there, and we carpeted it, fixed it up, and within a short period of time grew, moved a house onto the property and had two or 300 kids in a youth department. But uh, I was teaching heretic type of things con- uh, compared to what they wanted me to teach, and they kept taking that group away from me. It was kind of a love-hate relationship. They were loving all of the people I was bringing to the church, but hating my attitude and the fact that I wasn't totally Baptist. And so, uh, anyway, I began to get some experience there. That's where I met Don Crow. Some of you may know who he is. He's an associate minister with me now, a teacher in our Bible college, and Don Crow and I met about 1972, and he came to that youth group. He actually came to a Bible study I held in a person's house, and I was instrumental in getting to share with him about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he received it just shortly after that. And so while I was doing this in the Baptist church, I was also teaching Bible studies in my home, we converted my garage into a Bible study room. didn't have any furniture in it, but we could put about 60 or 70 people sitting on the floor. And there we carpeted it and fixed it up. And uh, I was holding Bible studies there. And this is back during the height of the charismatic move, about 1971. And in Arlington, Texas, there weren't spirit-filled churches as such. There was a few churches like the Assembly of God and some Pentecostal churches that believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit But the ones that I was associated with had themselves become very strict and denominational, and they were not flowing with the Holy Spirit, and they were preaching that this charismatic move was of the devil. So there was no place that would open up and receive what we were doing. The mainline churches were vicious against it back then. Today we see kind of even the the main churches don't come out against being filled with the Spirit. They may say it's not for them, but back in those days, it was of the devil. I made, uh, there was a church in Arlington, Texas, Pantego Bible Church, that published a list of places that were of the devil and told their people to stay away, and my Bible study was number two on the list. 
We received a lot of persecution. We were seeing demons cast out of people, seeing people delivered, which back in those days was radical, radical stuff. And we saw healings and things like that, and I was gaining experience. And yet I was really struggling in ministry. One-on-one, in small groups, I could minister. But if anybody ever gave me a church service, I just could not minister in front of large groups. And I struggled. Matter of fact, right after I first got born again, I mean, not born again, but after this experience, March the 23rd, 1968, this is before I even went to Vietnam, I, I was attending the Baptist Student Union at the University of Texas at Arlington, and the director of that Baptist Student Union set me up with a three-day revival meeting. And I was so excited about the Lord and wanting to tell people that I took it. And I remember that I memorized three messages out of a book because I didn't have a clue what to say. So I memorized these three messages, and I had planned on ministering one of them each evening for three days. Well, I got so nervous that I actually gave all three of those messages in five minutes the first night, and it was pitiful. I mean, it was really pitiful. I had a friend. Matter of fact, this Marion Warren, who I talked about, was praying in this prayer meeting. He came to my meeting, and he came in about 15 minutes late, and I was already giving the invitation. I mean, it just didn't last but 15 or 20 minutes, the whole church service. And if the first night was pitiful, you should have heard the rest of them because I didn't have anything to say then. It was so embarrassing. I promised God I'd never preach again. But uh, it's like Jeremiah 20, verse 9 says, it's like fire shut up in my bones, and I'd have to ask God to forgive me for making that rash promise. I just knew I was supposed to minister, and I'd try it again. Now, in smaller groups, I could do okay. In my personal Bible study, I did fairly good, but still, I was just in knots every Monday. My Bible study was a Monday night Bible study, and all Monday it was just... What am I going to minister? Oh, God, am I going to get up there and fall flat on my face? And even though I, you know, came through and usually ministered to people fairly well, it was a struggle. And there's a lot of things that happened. I hadn't got time to go into all of it. But basically, what the Lord showed me was that I was depending on myself, and I was taking it on myself to minister instead of relying on God. One of the ways that he showed me this was a good friend of mine, Joe Nay, who had been traveling with Kenneth Copeland while I was in Vietnam. Uh, He was an established minister at that time, and he would hold meetings in hotels and things. I'd go to his meetings, and he'd call on me and say, Andrew, have you got anything to share? And I was studying the Word 15 or 16 hours a day. And so, man, my first thought would be, oh, God, I haven't prepared anything. This has to be you, and I'd just stand up. And because I was so much into the Word, the Word would just flow out of me. Even gifts of the Spirit would flow, and people would start to receive from the Lord. And Joe would have to take the microphone away from me and make me sit down. And yet, if I got in front of a group on my own and had the control of a meeting, I mean, I would just get so paranoid I couldn't speak. And the Lord showed me that what it was, when I had time to prepare, I would do something. I would prepare a message. I'd make my points, my outline. And I would depend on it instead of relying on the Holy Spirit. But when somebody called on me on the spur of the moment, I'd just say, Oh, Jesus, it has to be you. And boy, this gift of teaching would come flowing out of me. And so through a number of things, the Lord finally confirmed to me that what the problem was, I wasn't depending on God. 
And I remember a special instance right after Jamie and I got married. We were married on October the 27th, 1972. And right after we got married, I was—I uh, had been working a job up until the time that we were married, and then she was in a, a music group that traveled and ministered, and I traveled with them, and they let me do some preaching, words of exhortation, 10 or 15 minutes during their concerts. And so I was doing that, and I wasn't working a full-time job. I was, I was believing God had called me into the ministry, and I was expecting it to open up full-time. So anyway, I was studying the Word all of this time, and I remember right after Jamie and I had been married that uh, she had already gone to bed. I was up praying and reading, and for a couple of days I'd been studying those scriptures where the Lord appeared unto Solomon and asked him in a dream what he wanted. And because he chose wisdom instead of riches and honor, God promoted him and gave him what he asked for, but also gave him the riches and uh, honor above any person up until that time. And I'd really been meditating on that. So this night, Jamie had already gone to bed. I went in and went to bed. And normally, I can go to sleep anytime, anywhere, sleep all night long, not wake up. But I laid down, and just about the time I was dozing off to sleep, I mean, I just woke up. I was wide awake instantly. And it was like somebody was in the room. I don't know if you've ever felt that, where you can feel somebody there. And yet nobody was there. And immediately, I began to think, I believe that this is the Lord. I got up out of bed, went into our living room, and the presence of the Lord became so real, so obvious to me that I was afraid to open up my eyes because I just was afraid that I'd see the Lord. I didn't know if that was good or bad, but I, I mean, I was just in the presence of God. It was awesome. It was awesome. Uh, it just was something else. And I felt in my heart after uh, 30 minutes of this, and the Lord didn't specifically tell me anything or do anything. I felt in my heart the Lord quickened those scriptures to me about Solomon, and I just felt like the Lord was saying, what is it that you want me to give you? And the thing I wanted more than anything else, I knew I was called to teach, and I'd seen some evidence of it in my life, but it was such a struggle. And I knew that I'd been trusting in myself that I, I just asked the Lord, I said, I want the ability to speak your word and let your word touch people's lives and change them. And in my heart, boy, I just knew that that's what God was offering me. That's, that was my petition, and I felt like God answered it. And immediately, I mean, that was like on a Wednesday or Thursday, I was ministering the next Sunday morning at our Baptist church. They, it was Layman's Sunday, and they had asked me to speak. And in a church situation, I'd, I'd bombed out every single time for two years, or more than two years, two or three years, however long I'd been trying to minister. I just couldn't minister. And they only expected me to go 25, 30 minutes. I got up there, and I mean, for the first time in my life, I had a confidence. I knew that God had touched my mouth. He gave me the scripture in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, that says, Say not, I am a child, for... I will send you to the house of Israel. He was speaking to Jeremiah. He said, before I formed you in the womb, before you came forth out of your mother's belly, I sanctified you and ordained you to be a prophet unto the nation. And Jeremiah said, ah, oh, but Lord God, I'm a child. I can't speak. And God said, don't you ever say I'm a child because you will speak. And then in Jeremiah 5, 14, he says, because you speak this word, I'll make my word in your mouth fire and the people would and it shall devour them. And I really believed that. And because of it, that next Sunday when I got up in front of this Baptist church, it wouldn't have mattered if the devil himself would have led the song service. 
prior to that time, see, everything had to be perfect. If there was anything bad, it just would have, I, it would have, I would have stumbled over it. I wouldn't have been able to recover. But I knew that I knew that God had called and anointed me, and He'd put His words in my mouth. And it wouldn't have mattered if Satan would have led the song service. I'd have got up and through the Word of God, I'd have turned things around, and it would have ministered to people. And for the first time in my life, I spoke like an hour and a half, and I had to, they had to make me quit then. Even though I didn't know how to minister and give an invitation, I didn't see all, I didn't see people healed or anything like that. For the first time, I experienced the real supernatural flow of the gift of teaching through me, and from that time on, I was hooked. Man, I knew that I knew that I knew that uh, God had called me to minister specifically to teach. And so, uh, right about that time, uh, this opportunity with Jamie traveling with this singing group dried up, and my only real consistent, regular ministry dried up. My Bible studies had stopped at the time we got married, and we moved over to the Dallas area. And so I didn't really have a Bible study going. Uh, I, I wasn't ministering with this music group anymore, and so I just began to seek the Lord, study the Word, pray all day long. And it's a long story, but uh, God supernaturally opened up some doors. One of the first ones that came was a man who I'd met two years before at a Bible study. And this is before I even was telling anybody I was called to the ministry. We just got to talking, and we liked each other. And he gave me his card, and I wrote down my name and address uh, on, a phone, uh, on a piece of paper and gave him my phone number. It was my mother's phone number at that time. That was before I was married. Well, right after all this happened, I was over at my mother's house just praying and seeking the Lord and saying, God, I know that there's got to be an opportunity to use this gift somewhere. And I was sitting there at, beside the phone, and this man who I'd met one time two years before happened to call my mother's house. I happened to be at my mother's house. I answered the phone, and he said he was praying, and he felt led to have me come and be the speaker at a youth group that he was, a youth retreat that they were having. And so, man, I took that as a word from the Lord. I went out there and ministered. We saw out of 47 kids, we saw 45 baptized in the Holy Ghost. Miracles happened, and it was awesome. And th that group was from Seagoville, Texas. And it's kind of a long story, but in a nutshell, they went back, and these youth were on fire. Their Baptist church told them that the baptism of the Holy Ghost was of the devil, etc. And many of the kids were, uh, they backed off of it. There was about a dozen, maybe 15 of them or so that really hung in there for quite a while. And I went over a couple of times and ministered to them, but uh, with no support from their family. The church was against them. They called them out by name and ridiculed them and stuff. They just began to fall like flies. And after about six months of that, I finally started going over to Seagoville, Texas, which was about an hour and something drive from Arlington. I went over there and started holding Bible studies to try and encourage these who uh, were still remaining. And through that, they got kicked out of their Baptist church. They had nowhere to go. The parents who had accepted the baptism of the Holy Spirit themselves and were supporting these young people, they got kicked out of the church. They didn't have anywhere to go. And so, to make a long story short, this little Bible study turned into a church, and I wound up pastoring. I don't really believe that I was called the pastor. But at the time, I didn't have any other opportunities to minister, and I, it was just the leading of the Lord. I even argued with the people for a while, and they said, you can call it a Bible study, you can call it anything you want to, but we don't have anywhere else to go to church. 
and we want to go here, and we want to come on Sundays and get together, and we want to give our offerings into this group. So I did that. And by the time I actually got moved over there, the group had dwindled down to where about 15 or 20 was the largest group that we ever had. And for two years, my wife and I ministered in Seagaville, Texas, and um, pastored that church. We wound up pastoring three little churches in Seagaville, Texas, and then Childress, Texas, and then on to Pritchett, Colorado. And I pastored these three little churches two years each, a total of six years that I spent pastoring churches like that. And during the first, say, three years of that, uh, while I was at Seagaville, Texas, and then the first year or so that I was at uh, Childress, Texas, I didn't work because of a misconception that I had, and I can't blame anybody else for it. They probably said things like this, but it really it was the way I took it. I felt like that if I went and worked a job, that I would be denying the call that God had on my life, that I couldn't be full-time serving God and working a full-time job. Now I know better, but at the time, that's the way that I thought. And I mean, we, we had severe pressure. My wife and I, during the time that uh, she was pregnant with our first child, we she went without food as much as two weeks at one time when she was eight months pregnant. Uh, we faced eviction notices many different times. And, I mean, we always ate. She didn't starve. Our child wasn't deformed. We were able to pay for uh, our child being born, hospital bills, doctor bills, etc., uh, we we made everything, but it was just a struggle constantly. And I mean, financial pressure was really severe on us. And uh, it was an area that I really, really, really struggled with. And the way that I came out of this, I even had people write me letters and tell me that I was of the devil, that if I didn't work, I was worse than an infidel and had denied the faith and, and et cetera, et cetera. And even though I think that those scriptures were true, that I should have been working, they basically came across to me as criticizing my motives and my heart and saying I was lazy and I didn't want to work, and that wasn't it at all. I'd always been a hard worker, and um, I would I would have loved to go to work and make some money and take off all the pressure, but I honestly thought that I would be sinning against the Lord, that I wouldn't be faithful to being a minister if I did that. It was a wrong thinking. It would have been easier for me to go to work than it would to stay and just pray. I, I would have loved to have done it. But anyway, I was trying to stay true to what I felt the Lord called me to do. And um, finally, it got so bad that I remember one day Jamie was just about ready to give up. I'd actually heard her praying after Joshua, my first son, was born. And she was praying one time, didn't know that I was around, and she said, Lord, if I ever, if Joshua ever has to go without milk or without food, I'll go get a job. But I refuse to ever have him starve and go without food the way that we have. And boy, when she said that, it just really hurt me. And I I knew that she was at a breaking point. It was just about the end of the rope, and we were behind on our rent. And she went over to a friend's house to wash clothes, borrow their washing machine. And I was at home praying, believing God to send some miracle in the mail. And when the mail got there, there was nothing but more bills. There was no money. And it was just to a place where I knew we couldn't survive that day. We were going to... We were going to quit and give up if something didn't happen. And out of desperation, I said, Lord, 
there's got to be something that you can do. And I started praying in tongues. And I mean, my mind was screaming so loud, quit, give up, it doesn't work, that I had to pray in tongues louder. And I was getting to where, I mean, I was in a loud voice praying in tongues so that I'd make myself focus on the Lord instead of my negative thoughts. And a lot of things happened. But the Lord showed me something that day that I knew could produce some money. And there was two things happening. He showed me how to sell some furniture and things. That, it's a long story. But anyway, I, I, that was a long-term thing that wouldn't happen for a couple of weeks. And also, there was a man who had offered me to paint his house. And he had asked me what I'd charge for it. And Well, my offer on it was $450. But by the time it actually came to painting, I said, look, I'm called to the ministry. I just hadn't got time to paint a house. Well, the Lord brought that back to my memory. And it had been about two or three months before But the Lord spoke to me as I was desperate, saying, God, there's got to be a way. And he said that if you will go talk to that man and tell him that you will decrease the price $100 down to $350 if he will give you an advance and give you $100 today, then you can get your needs met and get this pressure off of you. And I was so desperate that even though this was contrary to the way I'd been thinking, I just knew it had to be God. So I went over and kind of put a fleece out, which isn't always the best way to do it. But I went over and just asked this man, would he give me an advance if I painted his house at a discounted price? And he was so excited. He says, I'll not only give you an advance, I'll pay you the entire $350. You're good for it. And so that day, by the time Jamie got back from washing clothes, we had an abundance of money for us. And because of that, I began to start doing odd jobs. And within a short period of time, Uh, I just started working, doing carpenter work and different things to supply our needs, and we began to prosper for the first time since we had been married. As I prayed about it and tried to reconcile this with my stand that it was a sin for me to go work if I was called into the ministry, the Lord showed me some things out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where it says that uh, those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And it'd take a long time to explain this. I've got it on tapes and different things. But basically, the Lord showed me that my support from the gospel was proportional to how much I was ministering. When I was only beginning in ministry and getting started and only had 15 people in a church group, well, then I couldn't expect to live full time of the gospel. I could have gone and made tents like Paul did and supplement my income that there's nothing wrong with it. And anyway, the Lord finally showed me this. And so for the next year or two, I lived that way and supported myself, and we began to prosper for the first time. And then when I moved to Childress, Texas, and pastored that church, I became so busy there that I literally could not work. I mean, people would come by from early in the morning till late at night. We were experiencing a revival. Miracles were happening. The church grew to about 50 or 60 people, and I was able to uh, start living full-time of the gospel. Still had a few financial pressures, and every once in a while I'd go out and work and do something, but basically the Lord began to supply our needs. So that was one of the major steps into ministry, was learning how to finance it. And I know that there's probably some people listening to this tape who are in the same dilemma, thinking that it's sin if they work a job, if they're called to the ministry. And that's not so at all. I believe that the proper approach ought to be to uh, work, get your needs met, and start ministering on the side. And you can do that. You, it doesn't take a lot of time to minister one or t- once or twice a week in a Bible study or something like that. Or even if you're pastoring a church and if it's a small group, it doesn't take that much time. You can still work a full-time job. 
And then when the ministry increases and people are beginning to respond, and if you have to turn down opportunities to minister or you aren't able to meet the needs of the people, then you can start uh, ministering full-time or you can wean yourself away. That's a much better way and to alleviate that financial problem. I would not encourage anybody to do it the way that I did. But praise God, I lived through it, and now it makes a great testimony to share with other people. So I pastored that little group in Childress in Seagaville, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. And I was committed to staying there forever. But we just didn't see very much response. I saw my first blind eye open there. I began to start getting experience. I was ministering at least five times a week to our group. Uh, We began to start operating in the gifts of the Spirit. It was a great training ground for me. But like I said, 15 or 20 was the biggest crowd we ever had. And it was a struggle. The whole time we were there, and I prayed, and I was just willing to die there. And yet one day, as I was at the church building praying, and other people had tried to encourage me to move on and to do something else, I had no desire to do that. I was committed to that place. All of a sudden, my heart just changed. I mean, instantly. Within seconds, I I lost all desire to be in Seagaville, Texas. I hated it, as a matter of fact, and I was ready to go the first time in two years. And as I prayed about it, I stayed up at the church building and prayed about it for an hour or so. And finally, I was convinced that this must be God. He had just changed my heart. And I began to pray about where I should go. And I had this name, Childress, Texas, come to me. I'd never even been to Childress, Texas. Didn't know where it was. I'd seen it on a map, but I didn't know anybody in Childress. Didn't know what was happening. And so, anyway, I prayed about it. I went home, and I didn't know how I was going to break this news to Jamie because she was just as committed to staying in Seagaville as I was. And when I got to our house, I, I drove up, and there was a for sale sign in the front yard. It was a rent house. And I went in and asked Jamie what happened, and she said that somebody just came and put a for sale sign and said that we had to be out in 30 days. And that's what the Lord had told me, that we'd be there and we'd be leaving by a certain date. I forget exactly what that date was, but it was 30 days. It was the exact day that they'd given us. and So it was a confirmation. So we left there, and I, I went to um, Childress, Texas, based on what I felt like the Lord had spoken to me. I put an ad in the paper, and we held a little meeting in a place called the Women's Department Store or the Women's Department Center or something like that. Department Club, that's what it was, Women's Department Club. We had six women come out. And we saw some miracles happen, saw some people healed and things like that. But uh, over a three-day period of time, the crowd grew to about 20 or 25. But I was ready to leave there and go somewhere else. And the Lord spoke to me the night before I left in a dream, showed me some things that he sent Moses into Egypt. And the people didn't receive him at first. Matter of fact, things got worse instead of better. And that, uh, so it didn't work automatically for Moses. It took some miracles and things like that to turn the situation around. And the Lord showed me, you did not do what I sent you to, to Childress to do. And so from that, the Lord spoke to me that I had to somehow or another come across the people's paths. And this is another great lesson that the Lord taught me about ministry. And that is that um, if people were spiritual enough to have the Holy Spirit say, go hear Andrew Womack, and if they could hear God speak to them like that, then they wouldn't need me to teach them. The Lord said that the people are carnal. And until they get spiritual, you've got to come across their path in some carnal way. You've got to reach out to them. You can't expect me to just draw them to you. They aren't listening to me. 
So based on that, the next morning I got up and went and contacted the local country and western station, and I started on radio in Childress, Texas. Wound up starting a church there, stayed there for two years. The group grew to about 60 And for the first time, I began to see not only finances come in so that we could have our needs met, but the church grew to about 60. We saw miracle after miracle. The Word of God was changing people's lives. And I tell you, we affected the town of Childress, Texas. And I began to see some success there. And uh, even though we still had a lot of problems and stuff, um, the anointing of God was very evident. Saw people brought in on their deathbed, healed up. Uh, raised up. It was miraculous. And then I had uh, Don Crow was with me at that time. He was my associate pastor, this same man that I mentioned back in 1972, who I had uh, ministered to, and he had received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. This is 1977. We He was my associate pastor in Childress, Texas. He had graduated from Rama, And so he was with me, and his sister in Colorado Springs, Colorado, invited us to come hold a meeting in her home, and she was going to invite neighbors and people in. As we drove there, we drove through this little place called Pritchett, Colorado. Only had 144 people in it. And I mean, it just looked like the most God-forsaken place on the face of the earth. I remember telling Don, I joked with him, and I said, Don, I think God's called you to this place. And he said, no way. And we made jokes about it, like, who in the world would ever live in this place? It was 15 miles from the nearest nothing. And so we drove on to Colorado Springs. Well, within 30 days, I was back in Pritchett, Colorado, holding a meeting. It's a long story. It's miraculous. But a group of people asked me to come there. And they had, in a town of 144 people, they had about 12, 15 people in a church there. They were struggling, but they were wonderful people. And as I was there, I prayed for a man, and he was raised from the dead. And that's quite a story in itself. But when we saw this man raised from the dead, these people got so turned on. And I was leaving after this meeting. They came to me, and they said, you can't do this. says, you've totally destroyed all of our theology. says, now we're excited about the Lord. We're ready to go on, and you're just going to leave? And I said, well, what can I do? And they said, you need to move here. And... Man, that's the last place in the world I wanted to move. But within another 30 days, I had moved to Pritchett, Colorado. And I really thought that when I moved there that I'd leave feet first. Because, I mean, for the first time, I was beginning to see a little bit of success in Childress, Texas. And I was leaving a group of about 60 uh, where they loved us and we had a great relationship. And I was leaving that to come to a town of only 144 people and 12, 15 people in the church. And it looked like that there was no way to ever succeed. But I was just going there out of obedience. Well, I only stayed at that church for about a year. And within six months, we had close to 100 coming to church. They came from everywhere. And we saw many other miracles. And it was just a tremendous time. But the original people that were at that Pritchett church got offended that all of these new people came because they weren't coming from the town of Pritchett. They were coming off farms and ranches from as far as 100 miles away. And there became a lot of turmoil, and I was not a good pastor at all. I was, uh, I mean, it was like, you know, here it is, and if you don't like it, there's the door, leave. And uh, because of it, anyway, I didn't handle the situation right. They didn't handle it right, but as a result, I only stayed there about a year, and I left. And I had started six Bible studies in three states that I would preach at during the week, and then on Sundays we'd meet at Pritchett, and 
hold our service. And a lot of these people from the Bible studies would come to our Sunday service. Well, when I resigned the Pritchett Church, these people wanted me to stay in the Bible studies. And so for the next year or so, I just traveled a circuit of Bible studies in three states. And we saw these Bible studies grow anywhere from 40 to 60 people. And I mean, one of these places I held a Bible study at in New Mexico, you had to drive miles through the creek bed to get to this person's house. They didn't have electricity out there, no running water. I mean, it was just remote. They only had mail delivered once a week, and many of these people had never heard the gospel. And it was a wonderful time in my life. And so, anyway, I did that for about another year or so. And so that was a total of six years that I pastored these churches and things. And in retrospect, I don't believe that I was really called to pastor, but it was all that I had to do at the time. There were no spirit-filled churches to minister in. Uh, That was back during the time that they were just beginning to spring up. So I couldn't be invited in any place. All of the established churches were death on everything I was teaching. And uh, so really the only opportunity I had was to start my own Bible studies and churches and to minister to people. And so that's what I did. And I believe that at the time it was God's perfect will for me. But I wasn't gifted to be a pastor. I've always been a teacher. And in retrospect, I really believe it was a training for me. I learned a lot through it, and it was wonderful for me. may not have been good for the people that came, but it was wonderful for me. And so during this period of time, I was doing these Bible studies, and I never took up an offering. That's when I started giving my tapes away. I would have people come to our church service and to these Bible studies, and they'd never heard the things that I was teaching. It would just amaze them. And so they would bring a tape recorder and ask could they tape it so they could take it back for their friends because some of them would drive 100 miles to come to a service. And I said, sure. And it got to where we'd have 15 or 20 tape recorders up on the front row uh, recording what I was saying. And they'd all click off at different times, and the people would come up to turn them over, and it was it was distracting. So I started. I took this big microphone and tied a piece of string around it and hung it around my neck and plugged it into one tape recorder And then I would make tapes for them, and the next week when I came around, I'd have all of these tapes made up so that they could give them to their friends. Well, that's how I started giving away tapes. And I was putting out up to 100 a week, I mean 100 a month, by just duplicating them between tape recorders. And finally, one person says, how much would it cost to get a duplicator? And I told him, and he said, I'll buy it. And another one said, I'll supply the tapes. And so we jumped up to about 300 tapes a month. And... uh, I mean, it just happened. Back when I had first started in the ministry, back during this time I was talking about my wife and I was starving financially and her going uh, two weeks without food when she was eight months pregnant, in that exact week that I was talking about we'd been without food, we drove over to Christ for the Nations and heard a man speak on on prosperity. And what he was saying was revolutionizing my life because I'd actually been taught to think that poverty was a godly thing for a minister. And he was countering that with scriptures about how it is God's will to prosper. And I knew that I needed what he was saying, but I didn't have any money. Matter of fact, we had actually run out of gas on the Dallas highways coming to that meeting. And it was in the winter. We had our little, uh, I mean, it it was just a bad situation. It was cold. We ran out of gas on the side of the road, and yet we had to get to these meetings. We didn't have any money. So we laid hands on that car believe for God to start it, and we drove back and forth for days to those meetings on empty with putting no gas in it. I mean, God supernaturally supplied us. So it was a miracle that we were even there. And I remember going back and looking at this man's tapes, and I mean just 
wishing that I could get the tape. And I remember especially Jamie looking at those tapes and thinking about how we needed it so desperately. And here she was, pregnant, unable to eat, wondering if it was hurting the baby. And uh, I, I looked at her, and I looked at that, and I thought, God, if you ever give me something from your word that will help another person, I'll never deny them access to it because of finances. Now, at that time, I had no idea I'd ever put out tapes. But, you know, when this opportunity came and these people wanted these tapes, I just started giving them to them, and God started supplying the needs. If I'd have known that I'd be giving out twenty five, thirty thousand 30,000 tapes a month back then, I might not have done it that way. But, you know, I've just grown into it, and God's blessed it. And at the time I'm making this tape, we've put out about 3 million cassette tapes free of charge now. And praise God, many people's lives have been changed through that. So anyway, that's how we got started putting out cassette tapes. And things were really going good in these Bible studies. People's lives were being changed. We had a real love relationship with all of them. And financially, God was prospering me more than I'd ever prospered in my life. I never took up a collection, and yet we would go home and open up our Bible, and money would fall out, $100 bills. And God was supplying us with enough that we began to start expanding. And I actually went on radio again in Colorado Springs, and that's a miracle in itself. But I'd already learned this principle when I was in Childress, Texas, about I had to go out and reach the people. I couldn't just wait for them to come to me. And so I'd been thinking about it. A man came to me, said he would pay my first month's radio bill if I would go on the radio in Colorado Springs. And so I accepted that, and uh, I had gone on radio, and within a short period of time, I was on about four or five radio stations, one in Denver, one in Kansas City, one in Phoenix, etc. And mail just began to pour in, and finances began to pour in, and and so for the first time, my vision was beginning to increase beyond just a local area. And then the Lord spoke to me about that I was going to be moving. Now, I had not been a stranger to moving. The Lord told me when I left Seagaville to go to uh, Childress and then Childress to go to Pritchett, I'd felt the Lord tell me it was time to leave before. But this time, I couldn't seem to get a fix on where I was supposed to move. And I was praying about it and saying, God... I don't know where I'm supposed to go. I know that you're going to be changing some things, but where do I go? Where am I going to be pastoring? And finally, the Lord spoke to me and just made it clear that this time I wouldn't be pastoring, but I'd be going on radio and traveling, and that this was what I was really called to do, that all the previous pastorings were just preparation, and that I was going to be going into this traveling ministry, teaching on radio through tapes, etc., and... uh so the Lord got that across. And when I saw that, I said, well, where do I live? And he just spoke to me that it doesn't matter where you live. You can pick. Well, my wife and I had always wanted to live in the mountains of Colorado. And so we had vacationed up in Colorado, and we picked Manitou Springs. Uh, there's some other places I might have liked to live better, but I knew I needed to be near an airport. So the Colorado Springs area was some place where I could fly in and out of, and yet it was in the mountains, and so that's what we picked. Within a week or two of me... Uh, deciding that that's where I wanted to live. And the Lord told me that I could move any time after December the 31st, 1979. And uh, after the Lord told me that within a week or so, a couple from Manitou Springs came down to Lamar, Colorado, where I was living at the time. They looked me up through the Chamber of Commerce, came and found me, and said they wanted me to come start a church 
in Manitou Springs. And I said, well, I'm through starting churches. I'm just going to travel now, and I'm not going to pastor anymore. And they said, well, at least come hold a meeting at our at our hotel that we have in Manitou Springs. And I said, okay. I came and did that for a number of months, and eventually they, sa- they said that we're just tired of running this hotel. We'll give this building to you if you'll take it and use it for the Lord. And so I said I'd take it. We moved to Manitou Springs, and I asked them, I said, well, when would it be available? And they said, January the 1st, 1980. The day after the Lord told me that I could move. And it was the exact place he gave us this hotel, two-story hotel building. So we moved in there and began our traveling ministry. And since 1980, I've been traveling and on radio uh, ministering. We started off kind of small. At one time, I took on a network of 52 radio stations. It was called a satellite radio network. But... They were late times at night, early in the morning. The times fluctuated, and even though I was on as many as 52 stations like that, they never did produce very well, and so I eventually had to quit that. And so we grew very slowly from 1980 until about 85. And well, I was on approximately 15 or 20 radio stations in 85. The ministry was just growing by leaps and bounds, and I wasn't an administrator. I didn't know how to take care of it, and... um so as a result, we got into some problems on accounting. Not that anything was done dishonestly, but we just didn't know where we were coming. And so in about 1985, I felt like it was time to just go for it. I remember talking to the guy who was keeping our books and saying, you know, where do we stand? And he says, well, everything's fine. And I didn't look into it any more than that. And uh, I contacted some people. We made a big promotion. I mailed to about 40,000 people, which cost me in the neighborhood, including a uh, premium that I gave them and everything like this, it cost me somewhere in the neighborhood of about $20,000 to do this. And it really hurt our cash flow, but I was expecting a return to come in off of it. Well, what happened was it turned out when this man said that we were current, we probably had $15,000 worth of bills that he hadn't put on the book. And before we could get our return off of this mailing and our promotion about an expansion, etc., Uh, The bottom just fell out. The wheels came off the thing. These bills came due, and I found myself in debt for the very first time in my life. And I I panicked over it. And I had about $15,000 worth of debt, or maybe it was more than that. It must have been somewhere around $30,000 worth of debt. And I figured, well, if I just cut my expenses by $10,000 a month, then in three months we'll be caught up. Made sense to me. So what I did, I canceled a tremendous amount of radio, $10,000 worth of radio per month, thinking that I would be caught up in three months. Well, when I canceled $10,000 worth of expenses, my income decreased $15,000 a month. Instead of getting caught up, I went further behind, and now I wasn't, I didn't have contact with the people, so I couldn't increase. And so that was about 1985, and so from 85 until 90 or 91, we recovered from that. And basically, the ministry was somewhat stymied. We kept reaching out because of the free tapes. The number of people on our mailing list kept growing. Our income kept growing. It probably doubled during those period of time. But as far as actually ministering to people through radio and things like that, we were pretty much plateaued and stymied from about 85 to 90. And then in 91, we finally got everything all caught up. I I went through a series of managers uh, people came in, gave me a profit loss statement, set up some things. We were audited by the IRS, and they said we were squeaky clean. 
first ministry they had audited in eight months that they didn't put somebody in jail, and they commended us. And so we were. I felt like we were on our feet about ninety one, and so in ninety two, I started expanding again. This time with a lot more caution. We've added radio stations. We went from about twenty something radio stations up to a high of about fifty seven radio stations in about 1994. And, um, of course, some of these radio stations, it's not static that you just find a station and it works and you stay on it forever. You constantly have to be reevaluating. They sell, the market changes, etc. And so the stations fluctuate. Right now I'm on about 49 stations, I think it is. But we actually are reaching more people now than we were with 57 stations. But after we started expanding in 92, uh, we ran into a problem again where I uh, increased my expenses above what my income was, and I began to find some uh, financial problems again. And there's many things I could say about this, but one of our partners came in, a a man who has a business that grosses about $550 million a year. And he came in just to help me on the administrative financial side, and one of the things he discovered was that I had $150,000 worth of inventory sitting back here in a back room. And uh, the reason for that is because I printed my Life for Today Bibles, books, and things like this. And I I'd got high volumes of them so that I could get a discount per unit. Well, that sounded good to me. But what happened was I had $150,000 worth of books and things sitting back here. And this man explained to me that if I would have had all of that money I've got in that inventory in cash, that I wouldn't have any financial problems at all. So that was in 1995. And so based on that, uh, we have pulled down our inventory to nearly nothing. And so from 95 to 96 has been a great uh, amount of profit in our ministry. Our income has actually shrunk some because we kind of stopped expansion. And of course, like I said, there's an attrition rate. Some radio stations change. And so we've actually shrunk from that 57 down to about 49 radio stations. But our income profit has gone up because of better management. And we're now back to a place to where I think we're beginning to uh, expand again. And hopefully we'll do it with a lot more caution. Ultimately, my goal is that the Lord has shown me that I need to saturate the nation with radio. And it takes approximately 270 markets across the United States to completely saturate the nation with radio. There's over, I think, 1,900 Christian radio stations, but, of course, those are multiple stations in, in, in the same market. And uh, so, but to cover all of the major areas, it'd be about 270 radio stations. So that's about, it's over five times larger than what we are right now just to cover radio. Eventually, I'm going to be on television. I've already done some preliminary things on that. Uh, One program, two programs that I aired on two different days in Chicago area produced over a thousand responses off of just two programs. And so I've had some good success on television, and someday I'll do that, but I'm not ever going to stop radio to be able to do television. I feel really committed that radio is a medium that is more accessible to people, and it's more cost-effective. So I'm going to definitely do radio and add to it television to a degree. In 1993, the Lord spoke to me about opening up a Colorado Bible college which was totally different than anything I'd ever planned on doing. But um, 
I I started that in September of 1994, and um, it has just been one of the greatest things we've ever done financially. Uh, it took two and a half years before it broke even, and we still haven't paid back all of the indebtedness. And so financially, it's been somewhat of a drain, but it's now turned around. And the main thing is it's changing people's lives. And I think that in the long run, the Colorado Bible College has more of a potential of impacting people than radio, tapes, anything I've ever done. Because every student that graduates has the potential of reaching thousands and thousands of people. And I really believe that that's the way that the Lord called us to evangelize. I cannot do everything myself. I've got to take what God has put in me and instill that same thing in other people. I'm really excited about excited about what God's been doing with the Colorado Bible College. It's just been life-changing for the students and for me. I tell you, if I wasn't in full-time ministry, I'd be in this school. It's a unique concept. It's not just imparting knowledge. I've been philosophically opposed to the concept of Bible college because of the people I've seen graduate that came out with knowledge but no character. And to me, I don't want something like that. But the Lord gave me a unique concept about how to minister to people not only the information that they need, but about how to actually input into their character, how to disciple them. And so this is a totally unique approach towards school, and it's already been wonderful, and it's going to do nothing but get better. So it's it's really been good. And starting in um, September of 97, we open our uh, first international Bible college in Chard, England. Wendell Parr, who's been one of our instructors here at the Colorado Bible College, went over there, and he's opening up that school, and uh, we're expecting to see tremendous results over there. Our goal eventually is to plant Bible colleges in schools all over the world. And I could go on and on about that, but that's going to be a new dynamic to the ministry that if the Lord tarries, in another 10 years, I believe that the Bible college possibly could outstrip all of the other things that we're doing as far as effectiveness in training people and changing people's lives. So that's really exciting. And uh, God's just doing many, many things. Uh, The ministry has has been such a tremendous blessing to see the way it's changing people's lives. I just recently was in uh, Chicago and held a meeting up there, and it's been a couple of years since I've been to Chicago, and I look at the statistics on my reports, and sometimes you just look at numbers and you lose sight of the fact that they're, they represent people. And it's easy to fall into a place to where you're just looking at numbers, and if they go down or whatever, that... You know, you get an impression about how things are going. But when I was in Chicago, people came up to me by the dozens. I believe it would be accurate to say over a 100 people at this little three-day meeting and came up and told me about how that the radio programs had transformed their life. I remember one woman in particular that told me that she had been listening for 18 months every single day. And the reason she started listening to Christian radio was because her 9-year-old daughter was diagnosed with cancer. And she became desperate and didn't know where to go, what to do. She turned on the radio. God led her to my program, and she got, I don't know if she was already born again, but she got turned on to the Lord through that. Her daughter has been totally healed, no trace of cancer, and this woman was just crying. 
and telling me how that her life is forever changed. And I had dozens, possibly over a hundred people come up with tears in their eyes talking about how that their homes have been saved, children have been saved, families have been saved, people healed, delivered, uh, transformed lives. I tell you, it's just amazing. We get as many as, uh, I think our highest number of phone calls in one month time has been 2,700 phone calls. We get around five to 6,000 letters per month of people writing in and requesting things. Uh, we, distri- we have distributed now over 3 million cassette tapes free of charge. My books now have been picked up by one of the major publishers, Allberry Publishing, which is a division of Harrison House. And they're beginning to go into Christian bookstores, which is going to open up a brand new avenue of reaching people. I've seen statistics that as much as 86% of uh, charismatic, spirit-filled Christians frequent Christian bookstores. Uh, Radio doesn't have near that percentage or anything. So that's a whole new avenue right there. Uh, We opened up offices in the United Kingdom in 1991, I believe it was, maybe 1990 and have experienced tremendous success over there. We hold a conference there every year that draws at the present time about 1,500 people. And every time I go into a church, they're always packed out. People drive for hours to come. Uh, the tape ministry, we're putting out over 8,000 tapes a month now in through our U.K. office. And God is just mightily anointing and blessing the ministry everywhere. Uh, God has really been faithful to us. And uh, it's certainly not because of me. I don't have any false conceptions about that. I know me better than anybody else knows me, and I know it's not because of me and what I've done that God has blessed it. But it all goes back, really, to that experience that I was telling you about where I came to recognize God's love for me, and I've never gotten over that, even though the emotion of it has changed. It's not an emotional high anymore. Uh, it's matured into a real deep relationship with the Lord, and it's it's just influenced everything I teach. I teach about the grace of God, the unconditional love of God, about how you can't earn it, how that Satan's biggest inroad against us is actually getting getting us to put faith in ourselves and in our performance instead of faith in the grace of God. And through all of this, it's changing people's lives. People are trapped in religion. They're trapped in performance, not understanding the goodness of God. And I really believe that the reason that the Lord's blessing is on this ministry is because of our emphasis on the grace of God and the fact that we're just helping people to come to recognize that God loves them. And so that's that's doing what God wants done. It's reaching people and helping bring them into relationship with the Lord. And so I'm really thankful. It is such a blessing, such a privilege for me to be used of God uh, to reach out and touch people's lives. So in a very concise uh, way, I've left out a huge amount of details, but that's kind of a introduction to our ministry, where we are and what we're doing. And I just encourage you that any way I could ever be of service to you and help you, I'd love for you to take advantage of it. We have a tape catalog. I presume that you probably have it. If you don't, you can get one. There's over 400 subjects available. We have a phone center that's open from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Friday. And people are there to take your tape requests, to pray with you, to help you any way they can. If you have a need, please call and let us pray. We've seen great miracles, blind eyes open, deaf ears open, right over the phone. 
And uh, these people are trained to minister unto you, and they could be a help to you. And even if you call outside of those hours that the phones are manned by uh, a person there, you can leave uh, your name and address and request for materials on an answering machine, and we'll get them right out to you. But we would just like to be a blessing to you. I'd encourage you to get one of our newsletters that has an itinerary. And if I'm ever in a position where I can minister to you, we can meet you personally. We'd love to do that. And um, that's what we're here for. And God's anointed it. And praise God, His anointing breaks the yoke. And we're seeing that happen. Praise God. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net, and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.